the test pilot skills sort of does the same. It just takes you straight out of your element, puts you into things that you haven't done before. So nothing's funnier than watching a fast jet guy get put in a helicopter. But helicopter guys tend to hold their own pretty well in the fixed wing world. That that was my observation. But the fast jet guys were just useless when it came to flying helicopters, unless they had a bit of helicopter background. And there was always a bit of taunting going on there. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 82. We're going to air in late January 2020, just as the HIA Heli Expo is about to open its doors in Anaheim, California. There are a number of ex-guests that have been on the podcast that are speaking or running workshops there at the Expo. If you are getting along to the education sessions, definitely try to seek them out and introduce yourself or let them know that you heard them here on the show. Once again, I'll have to follow along on social media from across the Pacific. If you're on the expo floor and and find something really cool, think about tagging me in with at Rotary Wing Show on uh, Facebook. I can give that a a share for you. One of the ideas behind this show starting out was that it would be a, a chance to share conversations with people that many of us wouldn't get a chance to sit down with or to pick up some tips from. That might be due to opportunity, just due to access, or even geographic location. This is one of those chats. There is a bunch of info in here that you just wish you could have absorbed when you were first starting out in helicopters. There are also things coming up that are still way over my head and that leave you feeling a bit gnaw about just how much there is out there to be learned if you had the time and the access to the right people and the experiences. Plus, if you're willing to put in a, you know, a fair bit of hard study. Tony Norton, aka Squid, is who we get to hang out with for the next hour plus. Squid talks about some of his roles as we go through, but just to give you some quick starting context, he was the Australian Army Senior Blackhawk Instructor and spent three and a half years as a test pilot for the RAF Aircraft Research and Development Unit, or ARDU. He's been a senior instructor on the MRH-90 type. He's currently got positions as a senior aviation instructor stands pilot and the senior instrument rating assessor for Australian Army Aviation. On the side, Squid also lectures at Griffith Uni on their aviation degree program. Let's get into it. On the line, I've got uh, Tony Norton with me, but uh, aka or definitely middle name is uh, Squid. So Squid, thanks very much for, for jumping on the line, having a chat. No worries, mate. We'll talk a bit about your background, but the first thing, uh, again, uh, I guess different, is uh, you didn't start off as a, as a helicopter pilot straight out. You were, went into zoology and fish. How does one go from working with fish to, to flying helicopters? Well, the uh, interesting thing is I went to, to a uni to do... I didn't go to ADFA. I was always going to join the military. But ADFA doesn't and still doesn't have anything that I'm interested in. So, uh, But I've always been breeding fish. I've since I was about five years old, I sat on a veranda watching all the mirages and whatever land with my fish, with my goldfish. 
And uh, so anyway, I thought, well, if I'm going to go through college, I might as well get something that's, uh, that's something that I want to do. So I ended up doing the undergrad in zoology at Uni of Central Queensland in Rocky. And that was in uh, cladistic cordate zoology. So I was basically a dinosaur dude. I looked at anything was an animal. I'm not too fast on the squiggly little uh, non-cordates, but uh, that and a bit of microbiology. And in the end, um, I headed down to Tassie with uh, my now wife. Uh, and we did the post-grad 18-month, uh, I'm sorry, it's a year of coursework down there in, in um, fish farming, so in aquaculture. I put in my application, uh, this was back just after Gulf War One, so the short the supply of spares, there wasn't many aircraft flying, so the actual aircraft training scheme had shut down, so I did have something to do, so that's why I went off and did the fish farming. Uh, anyway, the uh, application came through, you know, got in the Air Force, Army and Navy as a pilot, and uh, I chose Army. And I've been flying ever since, but at the same time, I've also got a big shed down the back, absolutely full of fish, and that'll be my retirement job. So I was a fish farmer, and I was a pilot, and now I'll go back to being a fish farmer again. Moving around the army doesn't lend itself to, uh, you know, aquatic tanks and, and things like that. So how did you sort of manage that in between defence moves? So uh, how I did that, this is interesting. This is a, it's an interesting story. I have, actually have tanks pre-positioned all up the east coast at family houses. All about the Townsville. So most, mostly, yeah, posting the Brisbane and Townsville. I haven't done any down to Sydney, but I would do the same thing. So because some of my fish are, uh, you know, five, six hundred bucks each and really, really rare, uh, I would uh, do the family removal. Then I'd jump in the car uh, back down to Toowoomba, which is the home base, really, pick up the fish and the animals, uh, the smart mouth cockatoo that I also had that sat on the seat and swore at me for nearly well, that 15 hours of driving. And we got all the way up to uh, Townsville and I dropped the fish off and I had some holdover points when I went. So I was never prepared to get rid of them, and I always had them. And when I was up there in Townsville, at an aquaculture facility, this is while I was in the military, and it was under the house. We were farming ornamental discus and Amazonian fish. And yeah, I haven't actually ever stopped that. It costs a fortune, though. I can only imagine. There's a quite a, we're getting way off track here, but there's, there's quite a good uh, aquarium shop here at uh, Redcliffe. And uh, yeah, you just go in, and the, you know, the, the cost of equipment in there is, it's, uh, Maybe, maybe it is a bit like aviation in that, in that aspect. <laughs> you sort of start it, to... Uh... It is, actually. It's very much like aviation. If, if some of my discus breed, that can be like $10,000 worth of livestock. Yeah. It's like a, an engine blows up, there's $10,000 worth of engine. It's, it's a bit, it's very, very similar. You don't wheel and deal in hundreds in this industry. You wheel and deal in millions and thousands. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump back to the flying side then. So um, into the Army, pilot training, go through, uh, straight into Blackhawks. That was your first operational time? Yes, Blackhawk, yeah, 1996. So I got there just after the crash. Well, let's, talk, let's chat about that. So, again, we've covered the, the crash in, in previous um, sort of things. Well, actually, it was the crash was later. It was, so you did you start training in 96, and sorry, what, what, was it 98, the crash? Uh, the crash was uh, June 11, 1996. I okay. got there about September, so just after, to the, you know, the, the, uh, the proceedings post-crash had, had happened. The Board of Inquiry was well underway. Uh, and, the, and the unit was literally, uh, you know, quite low morale, but but uh, certainly building itself back up. There was a whole heap of fresh blood. Back then, we used to take on courses because we didn't have many pilots. After Gulf War One, the spares dried up, so a lot of pilots left. And the spare parts were gone. There wasn't much flying, so people left. But uh, we were courses of at least 25. And on my course of 25, there was one Iroquois and one Kyle pilot. The rest of all went Blackhawk. So it was a massive turnover of staff. And it was just like a time for the regiment to, to start afresh, I think. And we didn't know any different. We were just 
and Juby Cat D's straight off course, but there were some senior guys there, like Dave Burke was there. He, he only uh, he, he left at the end of that year, but I got to meet him on his on his way out. And that was 25 Army pilots on course? That wasn't like a, a Navy yeah. Air Force, that was, that was 25 Army pilots? No, uh, it was 20, 25 Army pilots, 61 Army pilots, 60 Army, 59 I think was a big one, and 62 were also big. Okay, because, yeah, I see. Couple that, of, that as much as the training system could handle. Yeah, a couple of years later, like, you know, we started with nine Army pilots in my course at uh, Tamworth, which was Tri-Service, and I think it was probably three of us later on by the time we got to, to uh, Oki. So, uh, yeah, okay, that's a yeah, completely different scheme of things. Mm. Like a standard sort of troop transport and all sort of Blackhawk bits and pieces, uh, and then Timor kicked off. Was that the first overseas deployment? No, the first actual overseas deployment, I wasn't there for Gemini, which was Cambodia. That was just, just before uh, me. Uh, but uh, we did Operation Pleasure Drive, which was to New Guinea. So we'd already been over to New Guinea a couple of times. But in 1997, Dry uh, was in New Guinea. And that's when they had the, the drought up there. And, and a lot of their rainforest caught fire. And uh, very, very similar conditions to what we've just had in Queensland and New South Wales and Victoria the last couple of days. Heavy fog. Couldn't see across valleys. You know, you were flying blind. Using the uh, the, the capabilities of the aircraft to, to get yourself around, and I did uh, two tours, I think, over there, which was uh, one at uh, Kilga and the other one was uh, Vondermal or somewhere. I can't remember, but it was up to the north. Um, it was humanitarian aid, dropping ton after ton after ton of rice and not much, not so much water, but certainly food because their crops had failed. And then Timor, of course, Timor started in 1999, and ever since then, uh, it's been a constant. Uh, just spate of uh, deployments. Uh, the world's gone mad. I think it, we, we were always uh, over overseas doing something. Uh, I suppose the highlight was when I went back up there in 2004 to go to Pakistan for uh, about five months, five and a half months, over to uh, based out of uh, Kazim Air Base in, in Islamabad, uh, but um, in the north part of Pakistan, and, and operating out of the, the base range uh, of the Karakoram range, which is where the Australian detachment was at. Uh, under the watchful gaze of K2, always in front of me, with a lower safe altitude of about 25,000 feet, which I could never outcline, yep. but there it was. Along the way, so that was 2004, so I think we were changed before. We probably bumped into each other for the first time down in Canberra when I was in helicopter school and you were doing your uh, instructor course and you had just finished down there. So you went through the QFI course 2001-ish? Yes, 2001, January, January 2001, I think. I have to go back and check the books. It's that long ago. But yeah, so I finished uh, East... Actually, no, sorry, it was 2002 because I did a second tour of East Timor and that's why I didn't go on instructor course early. But right at the very beginning of 2002 it was. And uh, that was the... I got to instruct on the very last course that went through at Fairbairn, at RAF Fairbairn, before the whole lot uh, moved up to Army and then Navy... Navy took the squirrels, we got the Navy's cryos, and we flew the whole lot up in one big packet. The CO was uh, Leo O'Reilly, and we, we injected 3,500 hours a year of airspace into Oki. Yeah, <laughs> gone from a sleepy little place to uh, yeah, a very, very busy spot. Um, out yeah, there. the biggest helicopter training facility in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, so a couple of years throwing itself at the ground, doing autos in, uh, in Kiowas. Did you bend any skids out there? Oh, you most certainly did. Uh, you weren't <laughs> okay. a good QFI unless you did bend a, an aircraft or two. As a matter of fact, I actually uh, category, uh, 
they say it was a Cat 4, but it was a Cat 5 write-off. Our Kiowa cost $200,000 to buy, but to fix the Kiowa that I destroyed was 400000 bucks. That was uh, all auto-rotational accidents. Uh, when we used to have this notion that um, we had to be excellent auto-rotative pilots because we still had single-engine aircraft in service. That uh, has well and truly gone now that everything's a dual engine. But yeah, I suppose in the end we realised, well, you know, we had Chinook and, and Blackhawk and the Hillies were on the way out. There was only the Kiowa training fleet. But both my own accidents when I was actually training students, they weren't uh, instructor, instructor cont um, uh, accidents. There was, uh, and both of them, well, one of them was an engine failure. It was a, it was a failure in the fact that it pr- failed to produce the power that I needed on a, on a high DA day. But the other one was, uh, we just got caught out. We were right on the edge of the go, no go, and the auto rotational uh, touchdown rough, and we gave it a shot, and didn't work out too good. Fair enough. And, and I mean, we joke about it, but like there was a couple over that period going, I guess it's just a, a matter of throw yourself at the ground enough times and uh, occasionally one's going to slip through. Well, you know, every sortie ended in an auto and some of the instructors were flying uh, three or four sorties a day. So you could probably say each instructor maybe, particularly if a, if a student didn't do well in an auto and you say, oh, I've got enough fuel, let's go and have a look at another one. So, you know, some guys are flying five autos a day 20 autos a week to touchdown, which you don't see this at all anymore in military aviation training, but you certainly don't see that in civil aviation training either because it's really, if you can get the aircraft into a crash-worthy position, that's what we're after as opposed to prove that you can land it at the end. So back to Blackhawks, you were the, the squadron uh, QF5 uh, there for a little bit, and when I say a little bit, you know, five years. So by the time you got to 2009, in terms of Blackhawk experience in the army, you know, you would have had, you'd be up in the in the more experienced people kicking around. Yeah, well, at the time, yeah, I was one of the few Category A Blackhawk instructors. So I was, I, I finished my Blackhawk time, I suppose, if you consider like um, QFI time before I became a test pilot. I, I finished on Blackhawk, so I was a cut A instructor training wing, uh, and yeah, I guess uh, as it went by the. I inadvertently rose to, to one of the higher levels and one of, one of the senior guys. I was the SFI for Blackhawk at the school and then finished off as the, um, the SFI for instructor training in the instructor training wing at the Abin TC. Well, let's talk uh, test flying, uh, which is where you obviously went and uh, what we're going to spend most of the time talking about. Uh, I know I had further down the notes there, but uh, in the squadron, one of the jobs you, you sometimes get was uh, the unit maintenance test pilot. And that was one of the ones yeah. I had on, had on Hueys. And, uh, yeah. you know, you used to tell someone like that and say, oh, you're a test pilot. And you quickly have to, to backtrack and say, oh, no, look, I just, <laughs> I just tested it. I'll just take the aircraft for a flight after the, after the mechanics have done something to it. It's uh, definitely not a test pilot. So it's, it's quite a jump from a unit maintenance test pilot up to, to you know, test flying in terms of what we're going to chat about. But, uh, yeah, how did mm. that come about? Uh, you talk just a little bit in general uh, about test flying. Well, I, I had hit the, the pinnacle of, uh, of you know my Blackhawk career. There was I could stay around my TW forever. I could go over to standards and become a dreaded standards pilot, which ironically I sort of run now. But I chose um, I was originally put on the ARH acceptance team. I was going to go over as an ARH QFI because they didn't have any the Kiowa world didn't have any twin engine background. So. The uh, senior sirs decided they were going to send this uh, upstart Blackhawk guy over, uh, but it just didn't work out with the family because all roads sort of led to Darwin. So I said, no, look, I'm not going to do that. But I was very keen, had been keen for, for quite a while on test pilot, 
but sort of got swallowed up in the QFI void, you know, I couldn't get out of it because I was so so high up in it. But then when you finished all your return of service obligations and, and you, there's no need for you to be there, well, this one got offered to me and, and so I took it. And it was in, uh, I, I was very, very keen. I did not want to go to uh, the, the Empire Test Pilot School. Uh, I was not keen on going to a European TP school. I wanted to go to an American TP school. Was there reasons for that? And the position was it... came up at Mojave. Uh, well, my my reasons were um, due to you know future employment down the track. Most of the aircraft that we were operating, ironically now looking back at it, most of the aircraft uh, that militaries operate are, are US military aircraft, and it is a bit of a clicky organisation. If you want to work in Europe, this is back then, um, and even even now, it, they sort of had this bit of a bias and say, well, if you weren't trained in Europe, you're not going to work in Europe because we don't really know what quality you are. And then uh, and Americans sort of were the same, saying, well, if you're trained overseas, we don't want you. We, we know what we've got. So anyway, I took the uh, one at the Harvey Desert because it covered military and, and civil, so I went to a national test pilot school in Harvey, California, what are, the, what are the other options? You've got the, that one, you've got the Empire Test Pilot School, and I gather from yep. trying to read up, the, the US military has their own one. Is that a closed shop, or would they use the, the National Test Pilot one as well? So the Marines and the Navy use US Navy Test Pilot School. It's at Pataxant River in Maryland on the East Coast. US Air Force uses the USAF Test Pilot School, which is their original one. That's where you know Chuck Yeager and, and Bob Hoover and all those guys sort of hung out and did all, their, all those really advanced flight tests, apparently where the aliens live. Uh, I never saw any. And uh, the National Test Pilot School is, is there as well. Now, that's the first of the civilian test pilot schools that's there. Now, the US Army uses a hybrid of both. It uses a bit of Pax River, and it also uses uh, it puts people through the systems phase at, uh, at National Test Pilot School. So that, the US Army doesn't have its own. But there are two definite US military TP schools. There's the Empire Test Pilot School. There's the French Test Pilot School at Etna in the east, in southern France, near Marseille. And, uh, and there are a couple of other test pilot training facilities that have um, just they've been around for a while. They, they come and they go. They, they spring up when they need it. But the International Test Pilot School is based out of London, Ontario, in Canada. And, and there's one in Brazil as well. Now, now that EASA has decided that if it's Category 1 or 2 flight test, it, they are obliged to use a, a Category 1 or 2 flight test pilot, that now means the industry's gotten that a little bit bigger. Do you want to talk about that then? What's Category 1 and Category 2? How does it fit in with... Uh, you had some notes here about airworthiness and, and flight test engineers, but before we go any further, yeah. what's a Cat 1 Cat 2? Well, Cat 1 Cat 2 is in the ASA term, but the ASA has fed into the FAA regs and now into our, our, own, our own regs. So literally they divided the flight test up into developmental on a brand-new aircraft that no one's flown, that's your Category 1, an aircraft that has its own type but is undergoing a severe like mod, so maybe like turning out an old UH-1H Huey into a 212. The aircraft has a type certificate, but there's significant uh, developmental design changes. Category 3 is your flight production, and Category 4 is your operational test and evaluation. Gotcha. So okay. Cat 1 and 2 is what the test pilot schools... Well, test pilot schools produce a Category 1 test pilot, someone that can come out and, and do that. Ab initio, never been flown before, Let's go and uh, you know, build this new type, so two developmental test pilots. The reality is that a, a normal QTP or qualified test pilot in the military will do CAT 1, 2, 3, and 4, but really that's what uh, institutions like ARDU and Army Aviation Testing Evaluation Squadron are there to do. It's, it's, the, it's the new stuff. 
Gotcha. Okay. A note here, we've got uh, Chuck Yeager, Bob Hoover, the, these people that, you know, there's this mystique of the test pilots, uh, and I guess at the mid-1900s, you know, where there's just you know, huge amounts of new aircraft coming online, uh, moving at jet phase and, and that sort of gear. But uh, it's, it's you know, especially that particular time, it's a pretty dangerous occupation. There's aircraft spudding in all over the place. And even more recently, um, you know, they had definitely deaths, you know, and even rotary world, you know, Bell 525, the AW609. It's... Uh, you know, it's it's doing something in aircraft that aren't aren't proven, and the test pilots are out there proving it. Yeah, you got anything about that? And is that something they they kind of drill down on on the course? Yeah, one of the first things. Well, if you go into Edwards Air Force Base, the first thing you see is a cemetery, and the first gobsmack you get is just how many tombstones there are there. And they used to lose, I think it was one test pilot every three weeks. So that's like one you know pinnacle career aviator that's got a whole heap of money and and the like put into them, they'd lose one every three weeks in their fly-fix-fly mentality because that's what it's all about. And you'd think um, in the current age of, you know, safety is everything, safety is this, there's still a requirement to go out and, and prove that something works. Now, we, we've got to the point where, you know, we, we, we think our engineering models are very, very sound and these, you know, and some of the, 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 the higher, and uh, uh, I call them engineering zealots, but that's probably not a good name, They'll say, no, we don't need test pilots anymore. We'll we'll develop this this aircraft on paperwork. We'll do all the wind tunnel analysis, and the first flight it'll ever have is the day yeah, we we we, uh, we take it flying. And and then we've had airliners, and I won't mention which types, but some significant prominent airliners that are flying around today on their very first flare round off to land have an inboard engine fail, and um, and uh, they oh, that was just a one off. And then the second one comes in and fails. So you know, there's still that requirement for people to go out and and, and uh, really, it's proof of the envelope. Someone's got to do it. If we could have uh, Star Wars-style droids to do it, they're expendable. But right now, we don't have that, so TP still go out. And on my course, I was sitting there. Uh, sonic booms are uh, just like you might hear 10 a day at, at Edwards. Um, everyone's going supersonic and pitches shaking on walls. And you get desensitized to it. But when you hear three sonic booms and bang, 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 you think, hang on, something's wrong. Uh, and it was an F-22. It, uh, it speared in right there and killed the pilot. And, you know, the reality is real. And uh, I do remember my instructor that day saying, hey, yeah, yeah, you know what, this is why we wear orange jumpsuits, um, because we can find the bits easier if you're dressed in orange. And that's literally what they said to us. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> I'll stick to my camouflage uniform. So we, know we don't wear the orange jumpsuit in Australia. That's a European and uh, mostly European and American thing. But... Uh, yeah, well, that's that. That is uh, the reality of of the job, and because of that, the insurances are through the roof. There's only one um, insurer that will insure, and that's the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. As soon as you tell an insurer that, you know, hey, I'm flying an aircraft that hasn't been proven yet, and uh, uh, or I'm flying an aircraft that is broken and actually technically isn't airworthy, they go, yeah, guess what? I'm going to charge you a whole heap more than what I'm going to charge that other pilot over there who's actually flying something that's quite safe. Yeah, and, and understandable if you look at the uh, if, yeah. you're, if you're the actuary putting together the numbers for it. Again, I, I did a, a quick looking around there. You, you land on the National Test Pilot uh, School website, and I, I don't know if it's on the homepage or like the very next page. It, it has the the cost of the course. <laughs> so, did you see the cost of the course before you you went across and did it? Yeah, it's actually dearer uh, than what it is now, which is good. Um, but uh, yeah. I was the, 
the military person to me said, I don't really care what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. But um, yes, it was uh, 981000 I went back and checked it, 981000 US dollars. And luckily for us back then, we were a dollar and four US cents. So it was actually cheaper. But nowadays, it's a million dollars US. This is for national test pilot school. Uh, the, the military test pilot schools are, are way more expensive than that, uh, around about $2 million, one and a half to two mil, just for a basic test pilot school for military. The civil one gets away because the aircraft are civil, um, uh, so it's a lot easier, a lot, lot cheaper to fly, say, a Cessna or a Beach Bonanza than it is to fly maybe an F-18 Hornet. So when you add the cost to the to that, as in the, the exchange cost, it's around about about 1.3 mil right now to go and do even the cheapest test pilot course, which is around about $26,000 a week, which is probably, as soon as you get a master's degree out of it, I think probably the most expensive master's degree anywhere on the planet. Yeah, so that's uh, it says 50 weeks, so essentially a, you know, a year from scratch to, to get it done. And I'll, I'll read the blurb here. It says, graduates of this course are capable of performing first flight envelope expansion and uh, definitions of performance, handling qualities and aircraft systems required for acceptance under civil regulations or military standards. And that's the, uh, yeah. uh, I guess, the, the core standard. Um, yeah, it's a pretty high standard when you, when you think of it. Not a lot of people pass. Oh, really? Okay. So you, not, everyone, what, what are they... not, not everyone passes. Yep. There's, there's still people that fail. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess uh, <laughs> a bit of pressure you wanted to, to get through it. So, um, yeah. Was there like a pre-course package? Like what was your, what was your prep before going? Well, there, there is a pre-course. There, each, each school is different, but for the National Test Pilot School, they're more worried about your ability to refresh maths, physics, statistics, so that you can talk engineering mathematics because when you get there, and uh, I do remember my uh, math lecturer on day one, he says, what we're going to do, you know, Monday we'll walk around, do our WHS and let's look at all the aircraft and let's sign you in. Tuesday, we're going to cover some basic math. And basic math was straight into third year um, engineering math. Straight into, I may as well have been in third year of a physics or maths degree. And that was basic to them. So what you've got to do is prepare yourself. And I hadn't, um, I'd graduated from uni in 1992. So I had to go back and, and, and do everything. So I, I, I prepped myself. You've got to use your own initiative with it. You can't just expect, these people don't hand anything out to you to say, oh, I'll help you with that. It's sink or swim. You're either counting or can't. And so our selection for test pilots is very rigorous. We make sure we don't send people over there, for, you know, setting them up for failure. So I did all grade 11 and 12. I did grade 10 just to make sure I had all those algebraic rules and everything down pat and all the quadratics and took me about a day, easy. And then I did grade 11 and 12 over a week, just took a week off. Did the whole lot, Mass A, Mass B, or what, that's what it was back then. I'm not too sure what it's called now, but those two advanced maths at grade 11 and 12 I then picked out all the old books, uh, dusted off my Edwards and Penny calculus yep. from university and went right up to third year engineering maths, right up to the multivariable calculus, uh, linear algebra. Uh, and I was sort of happy uh, that I was, I could probably hold my own mathematically, but here's a fish farmer going over on day one when people introduce themselves and say, oh, I've got a PhD in mathematics from Harvard and Yale and I'm doing, uh, I want to be an astronaut and you go, ooh, okay. But, uh, you know, math is math, physics is physics, and stats is stats. And um, and they do give you a pre-course saying this is about what you could expect on day one. When you open it up and look at it, it's like, wow. So you've just got to be uh, be ready to go. You definitely just can't turn up and go, hey, I'm, uh, I'm Squid from Australia. What do you got for me? Because they'll just show you the door. Yep. Now, 
I'm interested <laughs> because I've never yet to have you had to use calculus ever, uh, and I wouldn't even know where to start again. What's a, a very you know without going into too much detail? What's an example of using calculus? Example of using calculus, right? You, you, I thought exactly like you before I went over there. Consider you get into an aircraft and it has a stability augmentation system, and the stability augmentation system of a SAF is linked to an inertial system, which is a lot of helicopters and a lot of fixed wing have these days. All uh, gyros, your, your lateral accelerometers that feed into the SASs, they detect, the basic principle is they detect an acceleration. So the aircraft has to actually move, you know, the perturbation has to exist before the little accelerometer goes, oh, I just detected an acceleration in the y-axis, say. Well, that's an acceleration curve. And that could be in, in any form, um, depending on how the, the mathematicians have, have written the code. But the first integral of an acceleration is the velocity curve. The second integral of the velocity curve is a displacement curve. So if I know my acceleration and I know the curve, and it could be, uh, uh, let's just say the acceleration curve is um, uh, vehicles U, T, uh, U plus 2AS or something like that. Uh, you integrate that once, you now know what the velocity is in that direction. You integrate it twice, you now know how far you have drifted in that direction. And a really smart ACS like NH90 will then pull you back to where it thinks you should be in the first place. So there you go. Awesome. There right. is actually oh. a need for calculus. <laughs> I'm glad I asked. <laughs> Stops. Uh, all right, so the, the course you've got written down there, so about 20 on the course. I had a look, look at the photos. They're sort of like a, a tiered, you know, sort of university-style uh, classroom. Uh, and, and I've seen Top Gun, so I'm picturing you're all standing there with your stick with the little aeroplane on the end, with the aeroplane, you know, doing these up and down and making hand motions with things. Is that uh, how it goes? That's probably reserved for the QFI lounge. Um, <laughs> more or less, you're sitting there with a computer with MATLAB or some engineering software going, and you have the textbooks and references all over the place. And you set yourself up like a mad scientist and you're listening to an absolute expert in their art talking about something that is mathematically very deep or engineering very deep. Some things can be actually quite easy. Like, for example, um, well, not easy. Nothing's easy on test pilot course. But uh, say, uh, say when you're learning about night vision goggles and how to test for night vision goggles, that could be new to some people. Well, it wasn't new to me. But I can tell you right now... Um, Fly-by-wire control systems are very new to me and they're not new to the engineers, but you've got to have all the information in front of you. And you're taking notes like a madman so that at the end of the day you can go home and have something to uh, to fall back on. There are the odd uh, people with the aircraft on a stick looking at but we're, we're generally talking about angles of attack and coefficients of lift and differential equations as opposed to, uh, here I am you know, coming out of the sun at 9 o'clock. It's not that way at all. Even already from what you're saying, it sounds less flying skill intensive and more engineering background type thing. So uh, that's what I'm taking away. You're not going up and necessarily practicing the flying skills. It's it's more, well, I guess, you know, you are a test pilot, so it's more engineering side um, heavy. Well, yes. I would say look, the engineers really are the people that drive the developmental test. The test pilots get the medals. Uh, but there's a stack of engineers behind every test pilot. And so you are there to go and find that data for that specific test point. Now, some of these things may be performance and flying quality. Some of them may be qualitative where, you know, yeah, I, I don't think that's a very good uh, control response. But predominantly, it is 
yeah, it's just to find that engineering. You're there as a proof of concept and a data gatherer. Instructors, again, look at the blurb on the website, and I imagine the other test pilot schools are pretty similar. Like these are amazing <laughs> backgrounds to, to get there. They've gone through, you know, quite a career. And I mean, I guess the students on course have gone through quite a career as well. So then to step yeah. in and, and jump in front of these people and, and then teach from that side. So yeah, you want yeah. What, what was their experience from the instructing side? Well, you know, it's a bit like university. Someone gets a PhD, they're not a teacher, and all of a sudden they can go and teach. Um, and they've got no teaching background at all. Some some instructors are very good. Some instructors aren't aren't too good at you know getting that knowledge across because an instructor's job is that knowledge transfer. And you do see that in the different schools where some um, some of the instructors in the, well they don't even call them instructors. There's no such thing as like a um, say a QTP QFI someone that's there to to as a dedicated flying instructor for 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 QTP or a qualified test pilot course. There are people that specialise in that. Um, but some, most people, like, like say, for example, they, they call them tutors because that's exactly what they do. They're qualified pilots. You're a qualified pilot. This guy goes up and tutes you in this area, but he's, but he's not doing the, the classic rate sequence amount QFI that we would expect. Now, uh, but but a lot of the guys, depending on where you go, and I didn't have, I say guys because I didn't have one um, female test pilot instructor, but they, uh, you do feel a bit humbled when you when you talk to a dude that's been a 30-year test pilot, has been an SR-71 test pilot, was a space shuttle captain for, for two of the uh, STS um, uh, shuttle transport uh, service launches, and you go, oh, okay. Uh, but their, their knowledge is just phenomenal. And I suppose, like anything, it's on the job training for them too. They, You, you can never go over there and, and say, well, I know more than you because you just don't. But it's, uh, it's amazing what these people know, a lifetime of work, particularly at National Test Pilot School, where a lot of the instructors there are actually ex-NASA, ex-US Air Force that have been whole service careers being test pilots. You know, on my, uh, I have a lot of, lot of shuttle captains, and, and there was a guy that designed the B-2, uh, you know, like the avionics, head of yeah. avionics for the B-2. That's the sort of level you're dealing with. You're not just dealing with uh, with a guy that's flown in the military for like ten years, and he's like the best they've got to. He's the cat A QFI. These people, uh, I don't know. If you could say one out of every ten thousand people applies becomes a military pilot, out of all the hundreds of military pilots, one out of every thousand becomes a test pilot. These are like one in a thousand of those again in their in their experience, and it's just shock and awe when you when you talk to these people and. And this is, some of these people walked on the moon for crying out loud. It's uh, it's so different to what we can envisage back in Australia. The conversation to the bar must be just amazing. They are, <laughs> have no doubt. There, uh, there's some very interesting stuff comes up there. Uh, you, uh, I mean, you don't get any Matt Barker chicken bone stories, but you <laughs> certainly get um, you get some interesting ones. Well, here I was and. For example, Roger Smith, who's an SR-71 test pilot, he's retired now. He was on the, one of the X-plane programs, and you know, it was cool. His master just tell me how he can depart a control flight, couldn't recover the aircraft, fly by wire system failing. Oh, I just punched out at 25,000 feet, ejected, and we lost the demonstrator model. And you're like, mm, okay, that'll be a board of inquiry back home. But um, <laughs> these guys were like, yeah, no worries. And I bet you, if you look at the telemetry, he probably didn't even get a heartbeat race. It's just the way they are. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Wow. The uh, the format of the course, 
I'm just reading off your notes here. So mass, physics, statistics, uh, and the flying conversion. So I guess you're, you're in a classroom. I don't know. How long from when you first turn up to when you actually jump in a machine and go flying? Um, so you, you turn up on day one and there's big introductions. And they actually start the lectures. They bring the, the families out as well uh, and say day and have a bit of a barbecue. And then they say, wives, it starts. And then after lunch, the first lectures start and you're literally straight into it. So the first day is all maths, physics, looking at um, you sort of uh, fly in the afternoon, maths, physics, stats, report writing, probably got other things in the morning. So basically academics in the morning, then flying in the afternoon. Each each school has its own way of doing things. So like for Empire, test pilot school, they qualify you, and PAX as well, PAX River. They qualify the pilots on on a range of aircraft. So that's the ones that they would go and gather their data from when they're learning. So you might, you might qualify in like five aircraft. All that's got to be done in that first phase. The National Test Pilot School had a very different slant on it. They wanted you to fly as many things as you could to get the biggest range of exposure as fast as you could. So on day two, I flew the uh, Sub Draken Swedish fighter interceptor. Nice. Not a fighter. Uh, the next day it was helicopters and, um, and then all the fixed wing. It's amazing. They open up the hangar door and it's, it's like uh, for, for, for a pilot that loves flying, you see a hangar door open and it's just packed with aircraft and you go, I'm going to fly each one of these. And the idea is that they want you to fly each one of them so they can say the different characteristics and, and explain what they're talking about when, when they talk about theory. Yep. So yeah, you're right into it. Um, there was one day there I flew... Uh, extremely wide, like I was doing uh, in a Blanet glider, I was doing gliding at a Tehachapi with a space shuttle guy, so if anyone's going to teach you how to glide, it's <laughs> in a space shuttle guy. Uh, then landed, we went out and did the uh, uh, hover avoid curve, so the, the HV diagram for a Kiowa OS58 uh, Sally. We were looking at the knee part of that. Uh, I thought I was going home, and it wasn't until the president at the time, he says, oh, look, the weather's good, it's going to be Really bad tomorrow. Go get a G suit on, and we'll go and do the supersonic um, uh, transit over G pitch in the Draken. So you know, I went from gliding to helicopter to Draken, three sorties in one day. Wow, that's awesome. Came home and sat down. I thought, what, what just went on then? You know, it, it, <laughs> what a day. It's that's put it that way. Yeah, what a day that was in aviation. I've heard about that, and again, it's different because you know, I guess especially military-wise, Australian Army, you could fly one one helicopter type for you know seven, eight years, and that's it. You wouldn't fly anything else. And then that idea yeah. of jumping into a test pilot school where the whole idea is to untrain you from where you know one aircraft really, really well to then sort of start mm. to pick up the what's, you know, the, the commonalities yeah. between aircraft. It's a bit like recruit training. You know, they get a person off the street and they, they desensitize them, they, they deconstruct them and then rebuild them as, as soldiers or, or uh, seamen or airmen. The test pilot school sort of does the same. It just takes you straight out of your element, puts you into things that you haven't done before. So n- nothing's funnier than watching a fast jet guy get put in a helicopter. But helicopter guys tend to hold their own pretty well in the fixed wing world. That that was my observation. But the fast jet guys were just useless when it came to flying helicopters, unless they had a bit of helicopter background. And there was always a bit of taunting going on there. But, but yes, you get rebuilt and you get shown, you just get exposed and literally at the end of it you've gone from being an, you know, a, a pilot who loves flying and has a, an aircraft with uh, all these systems and, and a yoke and, and rudder pedals to a, someone who goes this is a piece of machinery that has an engine, has a power source it has a transmission source it has avionics, 
and it has inherent handling qualities. And that's what you look at every aircraft as. And when you look at an aircraft, you can't just look at it and go, oh, this is a beautiful looking aircraft. You go, look at it, I think its longitudinal stability would be absolutely rubbish with the stab there. I'd move that stab up a bit higher. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 just, you just don't look at it the same way ever again. And we also chatted last week and said that we had the uh, the Mill MI8 just out here at Redcliffe. Uh, it's been down. And he said, yeah, go look at the, the tarfin. And I, I, I guess yep. I saw it, but after you said that, I went back and actually looked at it and actually looked at it. And you're right, there's this tiny vertical fin on the, on this big helicopter. But uh, initially, mm. you know, until you actually drew my attention to it, it didn't, uh, you know, didn't stand out as much. Yeah. No, a test pilot looks at that straight away and picks it up. That's, you become very pessimistic. Nothing's ever good enough. <laughs> and you're always taught to, to think that way. You know, something, everything can be better. What's wrong with this thing? And why is it wrong? Yes, but I did see that. And that's a little, um, so I think it was an MI uh, an export version because some of the Russian gear I claim had no stab at all. Uh, and you made a comment up earlier in the notes, I'm looking at uh, the astronauts, and we were talking about uh, you know, the, the early test pilots and that, and you said that the, the hidden secret there is they were actually rotary trained as well. Yes, yes. None of the fighter guys like to admit that. It's also, also another uh, uh, I suppose, unknown truth that Neil Armstrong actually wasn't a pilot, he was an engineer. No, I think that rubs a few people up. But anyway, the uh, yes, with they if you go back and have a look at I think one of them one of them, Jim Cernan, one of the one of the Apollo astronauts actually had a helicopter crash a couple of days before he he went on the on the shuttle. They, if you can't fly helicopters, it's gonna make it very hard. You think of it from a fast jet side of the house where you've you've hooned around in the X axis very fast and pulled a lot of G's in the Y axis, all of a sudden you're going into a into this high fine motor skill, high gain tasking of maybe, say, docking with the International Space Station. That's not a fast jet pilot. That's a helicopter pilot. have no doubt. And so most of the, well, I, I can say, look, the SR-71 guys that I flew with, and all the shuttle guys were all helicopter qualified. They all flew with me on TP course. Every one of them was a hero driver. Yep. Yeah. But they don't like to admit it. Uh, I'm just running ahead. Um, so we spoke about Cat 1 and Cat 2 test pilots and the the idea of a UNTP. Uh, experimental test pilot, that's just a, another name for, for test pilot, who's a, a Cat 1? Yeah, so the experimental test pilot is a, is a test pilot on the year course and can and is qualified to do Category 1 and Category 2. You can do, you can get on a national test pilot school and you'll see they offer a dedicated, I think about six-month course, maybe four or five months, um, a Category 2 yeah, so test pilot qual, and that's performance and flying qualities based, but there's definitely uh, there's definitely a difference between the two. It sounds like, like it was just a, a massive eye-opener. It's like peeling back onions, if you want to think of it like that way, that you, you know, you'd already been flying for how many years by the time you got there? So 2009, we're talking almost 13, 15, years. 13, 13 yeah. years before you get there. Yeah, it's my 14th year in flying when I went over. Yeah, and it sounds like they just basically started peeling back layers that you never ever come across. So one of the questions I had for you there was, you know, things that you'd learn on test pilots course that you hadn't previously been exposed to. Um, you got down, you know, it's a, an exhaustive list. So what, what were some of the, yeah. you know, for us on the outside looking in, what were some of the big takeaways that were the biggest eye-openers? Yeah, it is a bit of a... It is a bit of an inexhaustive list. When I came back, though, I felt, well, you know, as a QFI 
in the Australian military system or any of the Commonwealth Killfires as well that were over there. And said, yeah, we didn't actually learn much about flying here. And the course has to go right back and assume you've never even rolled the engine off a Kiowa, whereas a, whereas a QFI is saying practice like 10 times a day and retarding an engine and making sure it's still alive, you know, still running, so that you can then give a, a student a, a training order rotation. So that part there was stuff I didn't have to learn. But the theory of why helicopters fly, or how actual helicopters fly, a lot of the stuff we get taught is very... Let's say dumbed down, but it's very uh, it, it's set for the the, the, the average GA military pilot because the GA and the military learn the same same theory. Like you, the the lift equation is is fundamentally um, the basis of everything. But maybe maybe the vector diagrams for how aerofoils are is actually not right at all. So the old ben- Benelli theorem. Well, Benelli's is going to always be there, but you know, like. Uh, um, the way we drew our helicopter vector diagrams is it was good to get a concept across, completely and utterly wrong. And it's a little bit like uh, special relativity and general relativity. You know, we, we, we know about quantum mechanics because we can answer some questions with that that the other theory won't answer. In the helicopter world, there's weight element theory and there's momentum theory. And uh, they, no one really knows there's no set uh, one unified theory for uh, some of the helicopters work. Um, and, but, you know, we, we fly, fix, fly, we keep tweaking things, and all of a sudden we've got things like the Chinook, and you go, right, that works. They're an aerodynamic nightmare, the Chinooks. They're so, so much of an aerodynamic nightmare, they don't even teach them at test pilot school. They just say, stay away from TAMs, we don't know how that works. <laughs> um, and so when you come back, you're, wow, okay, I didn't know that. You know, there's a lot of things there. Um, but I would say that... Uh, yeah, look, there, there are a lot of you, you. You do look at the aircraft a, a totally different way. Um, G- general uh, handling, like you know, the, the, the range of maneuvers that your average commercial or even you know, your average military pilot flies. After doing test pilot mm-hmm. course, coming back and, and looking at those, like, did you modify how you fly day to day? You know, in terms of either control inputs or uh, you know approach angles or anything, or it doesn't change that sort of day to day stuff. Not really. Because those techniques and procedures were actually constructed by TPs and senior pilots anyway, so they're actually safe. What what happens as a test pilot is you probably think about what's going on aerodynamically and mass bending moments, and where where your retreating blades are going to be at with respect to you know critical alpha more than what you think about when um, uh, when you're just flying. You know, when you, you don't need to think about that. You, you, you're just a a, a, a GA pilot or a new military uh, pilot, you just go flying, you get taught the procedures you, you were shown and you don't think about So I suppose we're looking right behind, probably look too far into it right now. Aviation takes on a totally different different background. It's quite interesting, actually, the way your brain thinks. But you know, I've noticed I sit there in the hover and doing some demonstrations like the auto hover and the NH-90 and thinking, you know, I know how much the tail rate is suffering here now and I know where the critical angle of this aircraft is at each time. Um, yeah, it's hard to explain. It does make you overthink things, but, you, but you've been trained to think and feel. Yep. You're looking for problems. Test pilots are pessimistic. They're always looking for a problem. Yep. That's why they're there. Taking it back into a classroom, and that's one of the other questions I had there is, you know, if you're sitting down with people who are learning circuits or, or learning, you know, really, really basic stuff, would you still draw the standard vector diagram or would you bring in elements of, like, 
taking that one step further and drawing a different vector diagram, does it bring out any lessons that are worthwhile at that point, or are you better off just sticking with the, the simplified version to, to get across what you're after? No, I'll still use the standard vector diagram because that's the way I get across the, the, the technical concepts simply to someone. One thing I won't teach anymore is the fact that A, B, and C in order rotation because that's just uh, absolutely not even remotely true. You know, that's all part of the mathematical equations of, of uh, with the Euler equations for how the helicopter works. But the lift, I mean, lift is still there. There's, I think the biggest thing I, uh, is that I can probably answer a wider range of questions when people say, well, what is the coefficient of lift? And I can go, well, I can draw you a, you know, I can explain that it's a differential equation inside a differential equation. And it's a constant variable, and I can I can explain things a whole heap more in depth. But nine times when I do, uh, nine times out of ten when I do get started, and I start explaining, I look back and I just see eyes glazed over. You've lost and it. I've even had my previous CEO goes, I have absolutely no idea what you just said. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, so well, abstraction, you know, for day to day stuff, like abstraction is very, very important. Like as you said, you know, you have to think about quantum theory and every time you did something it'd be very hard to get anything done so abstraction is just as important sometimes rather than getting too deep so i find it very hard sometimes to back it down to the level that's needed for ab initio because i want to explain so much and i'd like to say hey you know if i'm teaching the casa bak syllabus to people and say well here we go this equals this and here's the diagram and here's where the lift and here's where the center of pressure is but I'd love to say hey but when you go supersonic that moves back to here and this pitches and that goes over there and you can't you just can't do it because the little blogs he's sitting at the table's going oh, I'm already maxed out you, you lost me when you drew the first square you know? you um, highlighted um, center of gravity as something we don't spend enough time talking about what are yeah. what are some of the things you'd, you'd focus on more on, on center of gravity uh, understanding the um, so this is helo based I suppose more than anything and we, we, we tend to just jump in the aircraft knowing that if we're within this weight we're within our centre of gravity or, or an aircrew or a loadie has said hey you know, we pick up this load we're going to put it over here your centre of gravity is still within so we, we tend to be pretty ignorant we know we're inside the box what we're not thinking about is what that does when uh, when things change in a hurry you know um, so like if you were with an aft centre of gravity and you were, were low power. I knew I had the control power to be able to arrest the, the rate of high pitch in a flare in order to rotational touchdown. Just, just little things like that. Uh, but once again, that may be just my brain looking too far in it. But I do know that when I do exams on both military and civil, uh, it, it, it's very obvious that the, that the knowledge of centre of gravity is not there. And you will sometimes see in the, in the uh, crash investigations that they people didn't understand the performance or the handling of their machine and the center of gravity of the machine. It was one of the leading contributors or part of the contributors to, to, to the crash, which is a shame because uh, I now always know the aircraft captain's always responsible for, for you know, performance and, and center of gravity, knowing where it is the whole time and the safe operation of the aircraft. And I just think we probably don't pay as much service to it as, as maybe we used to. Maybe we're worried about can this person do threat error management a little bit more than actually, let's just get back to the physical flying of this aircraft. What is this thing doing? If you have an engine failure and you want to brake right to land and you've got a left crosswind, what's that going to do to you? And that's the little bit I think we may have uh, may have lost. For, for me, it's like you crack open a flight manual and it says you, know, you have a, a centre of gravity uh, plot and where you, where you can have. 
but it doesn't go any further. So it, it says, okay, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm right on the forward edge of center of gravity, and when I pick up, the aircraft's going to feel different, all those sorts of things. It, I haven't come across yet, or I don't know where to go look up in terms of from the designer point of view or the test pilot point of view, why they decided that that point is the, the forward center of gravity and not, a, not an inch further forward. So can you talk about the, mm. the consideration there, whether it's forward or, or aft CFG? How do they decide that that's where they're going to draw the line on the chart, that that's as far as you can go? Well, it purely comes down to control power in a helicopter and, and elevator power in, in a fixed wing, say, for a longitudinal uh, or pitch stabilities. Uh, you, yeah, that's right. So the idea is that you give a, a basic operator, uh, both civil and military, here, here's your envelope, you're in that, you're safe. You should, you should be fine. Is there yeah, a, um, I don't know, like does a test pilot society give out a, is there a formula or a, of how much, you know, forward cyclic past that or is it at a rate of pitch that you have to be able to achieve past that? How, how do you approach it? No, well, what we would do is normally when we're, when we're working out centre of gravities, what the aircraft can handle, what the control power is available, we would add, we'll find the very edge of the envelope and then we'll back it off to a number, whatever whatever the spec is. Mill spec's different to civil spec, but 20% is a good number. So when you hit your V&E, there's still probably 20% more control that you've got. So we put a lot of fat into it, most definitely. Yeah, okay. No, I was just yeah, wondering how they, how they work it out, but uh, that's fair enough. Uh, well, it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of instrumentation and there's a lot of, uh, we basically look at, uh, so the, the aircraft are instrumented and we know where the control is physically in the cockpit compared to, uh, you know, what, what the max uh, piston length or the piston throw is on, on, a, on a control rod or, you know, you know you've got to know when your controls are running out and has the aircraft got the ability to respond or be able to handle, because uh, remember they've got to be able to demonstrate that control out to a certain um, crosswind as well. Say for a helicopter, you've got to be able to, you know, take that control. That, that that's a adverse CG where maybe you're picking up two people on a on a, on a sling, hoisting them up, winching them up, whatever however you want however you want to say it. But uh, and that CG is out, and you've got and you've got an adverse wind. There still needs to be a control margin on that. So while sometimes control margins might be very generic, and the aircraft can do a lot more than that, that's actually that's okay. You're in the middle of the safe envelope, not the edge of the actual operating envelope. And that's what the test pilot's job is, and an engineer to go out and find that. Your turn there. I don't think I've come across rotor digging. Now, what's what's rotor digging? Rotor digging. Yeah, well, you won't find it. Um, you won't find it much if you even if you Google it. I don't know where you'll find it. But rotor digging is an aerodynamic phenomenon in uh, in some helicopters, mostly articulated helicopters that 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 act sort of rigid, like they're starting to get. Very stiff blades and very stiff heads. So Blackhawk and Snowy rotor digging manifests when you basically run out of manoeuvre stability in a, in a helicopter, or your manoeuvre stability goes goes haywire on you, and, and the disc literally goes unstable and just folds back. And it manifests usually. This is quite at a high angle of bank as, as a general rule. Say for Blackhawk, you know maybe seventy degrees angle of bank, and you're really roll power pulling. You know, you're pulling around the corner. The um, actual disc can dig in, fold back, and what manifests is actually a nose slice. We used to call it a nose slice in Blackwell. NS90 has the same. I think I could go and demonstrate it on just about any helicopter, but it's, it's that point where the rotor actually goes dynamic in pitch and pulls back. So you're talking a lot of people like the, like it 
it flatbacks? I don't know. I, I, I might be. It's a um, it's a fl- it's a flat back. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah it goes dynamically unstable and nose up, positive pitch. Now the black hawk's an interesting creature because it uh, and this isn't just limited to black hawk either. Those mixing units you have up on that upper deck, they do things that only witches know about. And you can see, uh, like in a black hawk, for example. If you roll to say 30 degrees angle back, maybe about 45 degrees angle back, where you're pulling about 1.3 g, it's all about g g loading on the disc, hence the angle of attack instabilities on the disc. And as you roll to say 45 degrees angle back, if you had a direct control line up to the main rotor, you would actually find that instead of pulling back on the stick now, you'd have to push the stick forward to maintain the g. And that's the most bizarre thing on the planet. So the engineers put in the pitch bias actuator and the mixing unit. It takes all that out, so you don't feel it. So as a pilot, you feel, you know, as I, as I roll, I've got to pull, roll, power, pull. It's always the mantra that we use. You don't roll, power, push forward. That would be weird. But that actually happens. That's aerodynamically happening to that to that rotor disc. So there's lots of things going on upstairs that you just don't see. Matter of fact, you get very scared of flying helicopters up test pilot course. You see all these things that go wrong. Well, now all the weird things that are going on upstairs there, and I really don't want to do that. I'd rather just sit in the hover. Oh, I'm reading a human factors book at the moment about uh, sort of like the the underlying things that are happening in, in all the biases before you even think you know you get to the conscious thought. And it's the same approach, like mm. you're reading all the stuff, thinking, <laughs> how can I even you know how do people operate? Yeah, yeah, little things you don't know, like you know, in a helicopter with wheels, the, the most amount of mass moments you'll put on that helicopter is when you're ground taxing. Yeah. Okay. Because landing, landing it. it's actually more on the ground than when it's in the air. Because the body can't rotate to, to match underneath. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. So the so the give has to come through the through the head and the mast. I had a question there. How would you or would you have adapted the ab initio syllabus, um, given what you've you've done either through the test pilot's course or, or working since then as, as a test pilot? So, yeah, the first one you had is you know fully expect the engine to to quit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, this might also be a part of my um, pessimism, just instructor experience and <laughs> pessimism. But if you brief yourself, well, we always say, oh, yeah, no worries. I'm going to depart in that direction. It's power in plan, whatever. Power is this, wind's that. I'm going to go that way. Uh, with little regard to thinking, well, you know, if the engine fails, well, don't worry, if the engine fails, I'll just lower the collective and I'll do what I've been trying to do. What you should be doing, and, and TPs brief every sequence. So it'll be straight and level, right? And you'll be briefing the sequence. This is what we're going to do. We're going to turn right 30 degrees angle back. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. If this fails or whatever, this is what we're now going to do. So what I would actually say, and the military do very good, uh, uh, every landing and takeoff is briefed to the crew. Everyone knows exactly what's going on. And some of the civil operators do too. But you should be saying in your head, right, I'm going to fly from A to B. This engine is going to fail on me. It's going to fail. How am I going to get out of it? And then why that departure or that approach? And when you get to your, your VY or your safe single engine or uh, some sort of uh, ability to at least be able to recover a, a, a single engine failure, then then you're safe. But before that, if you're not thinking about it, you're doing yourself a massive injustice because just flying there, just you know, not waiting for things to happen is not a good thing because your reaction time is just not there. So you're talking about basically just priming yourself so you're... You, you hands and feet yep. are already ready to, to make that movement as soon as you, you get any yeah. indication. Well, it's, yeah, all accidents happen at some stage at the ground. 
there's been a failure or something upstairs, but the accident happens when, when you smack into the earth. So if you can set yourself up, and this is why I like the PC1, PC2 that the civil uh, system has had for years with the certification of the aircraft versus the techniques and having that single engine assurance, we're now bringing that into the military. Exactly the same. Um, whereas in, in the past, we haven't uh, worried about it so much. So if you were worried the whole time, you go, look, I'm just going to brief this time when we, the engine fails, I've got this big runway ahead of me. If I then turn, um, you know, air traffic control says, hey, look, make an offset departure, and you go, okay, that changes everything. That's changed every last bit of your plan and, and the safe recovery of that aircraft before it hits some sort of safe VTOS flyaway parameter. And you need to think about it, not just go, yeah, no worries, and just blast off. Because it's, you, you've changed the dynamics and the recovery dynamics of your environment. Gotcha. Okay, the second one was, yeah, enhance and understand your usable queue environment. So do you want to go in yeah. a bit more and talk about queue environment? Yeah, so think of 9 ops. Well, actually, you know, let's just think about NVGs. When you go on NVGs and you fly for your SAR MS unit or you fly in Blackhawk or whatever you fly, you've got a set of goggles that have got a capability. The NVGs can see good in highlight. They can see, they'd like to be around about 2 milliluxes, 2 to 5 milliluxes is their best. Under that, they degrade. You know, so you need to know that they've degraded. Uh, and, but you've got a big searchlight there. So once you can't see things, you're naturally doing this anyway. You go, I can't see anything. I'm going to turn on, on the searchlight. But we're not teaching why we do it and, and, and what the usable queue environment's all about. Because I can go out on a very, very dark night. I can be on the blackest night ever on NVGs and go, no worries. I'm going to an edge of the cliff to, to recover somebody. So if I stay up at a higher, you know, what I would determine as lower safe or legally calculated lower safe, I get to where I'm going and I go, there's a tree. Okay, I'm going to go over and put a searchlight on the tree and go, that's not that bad. But I've just created a usable queue environment that's suitable. If I haven't got that usable queue environment, I now need to say, well, what do I need to do? Now, the... In the past, in the old, uh, older, older aircraft, we've just physically flown it the whole time. You might remember back to Huey days. You didn't have any AFCS. You were the AFCS. You, you couldn't do a lot of things because you just didn't have the queuing environment to do it. And then Ace 90 can pull up alongside that cliff and, uh, and the aircraft can say, hey, have you got a good hover reference? And I go, yeah, even better. I've got a auto hover system. Bang, turn it on. And it's that change of mentality of, and actually teaching people, what can I see? Have I got the cues to be able to detect your drift and, and vertical? Or do I need to really start relying more on the systems now to do that? Now, the aircraft just get more and more complex. I mean, you look at an Australian Army uh, pilot or Navy pilot that comes through, they're pretty well blessed. They, they get it, their first flight in a helicopter is in an EC-135 with a, with, a, with a very good stable autopilot. And after that, they'll only ever fly a fully stabilised aircraft. They won't have the luxury of uh, ever seeing, you know, flying a Kyala or a Bell 47. So it's totally different. We need to be able to teach people about the queuing environment in dark conditions. And, and not, uh, the other danger in, in NBGs is not just dark conditions, it's light conditions as well. Because you can have the brightest full moon night, and a lot of NBG pilots out there I'm sure will agree with me, you can say, hey, it's too bright tonight for gold, so I'd rather go unaided. This is where Top Hour reigns supreme because you can use more run-aided vision. But for a direct view system like Anvis, in a really low-queue environment like flying over a wheat field or a snow, you know, how many helicopters have we seen in crash comes that have crashed into snow because the queuing environment is not good enough for them, even in the middle of the day. 
how do you make the queuing environment better? Well, you probably can't, but hey, can I use the auto hopper system to do that approach? Well, yes, if I've got one. If I haven't, how am I going to do it? Well, I'm going to approach to the tree over there and then move across. That's the sort of techniques I think we need to start um, probably bringing in uh, more. Now that these aircraft, particularly the military aircraft, have a lot more systems. We pay for all these systems and we're just not turning them on and using them properly because we're still living in the older Blackhawk Huey days with their mentality. But that'll all change. I think we're running out of time tonight to talk about um, about FLIR, but that's what I guess you're saying is you know it gives you, you know, a FLIR system gives you another whole range of, of cues that you can use to work with to, to supplement whether it's visually looking outside or whether you're using uh, goggles. And a couple of people, you know, people who may not know, we talk about, we said Top Owl, you're obviously talking about the uh, the helmet system that uh, we're using in uh, Tiger, I think, as well as NH90. Tiger and Tiger, yeah. yeah. Tiger and NH90, yeah. Yeah, Top Owl takes it to a new level because you're no longer dealing with one electro-optic system, you're dealing with a mission system. I'm not too sure how many other aircraft have to have a pilotage flare. I know the Apache most definitely does, but if you think of the Apache, it's got uh, the pilot sitting with one eye looking out from this flare on a monocle, and the actual flare is positioned around about 20 feet ahead of them, or something like that. I'm, I'm not too sure of the numbers. Top Owl has the flare positioned at the front of the aircraft and produces a three dimensional flare image projected onto the visor. So, the old, this has issues, of course, because you're looking at a 2D image and you, you've got to make use of the monocular cues. So you need, to be, you need to create a 3D world out of a 2D world. But all flares do exactly the same thing. You, you see a nice, beautiful flare image. Now, there are nights that are ambush nights, and there are nights that are flare nights. And a lot of times, in real dark nights, I'm not flying, I shouldn't say ambush, really image intensifies what I'm saying. There'll be some nights that I go, yeah, no, it's just too too dark. Or maybe the moon's at a very, a full moon at a very low angle, which is casting shadows everywhere. Uh, or a truck coming straight at me down the highway, which renders my... Um, my night vision goggles are useless. I just flick straight over the floor and that problem's gone. But once again, what's my queuing environment? So, you know, if I'm on floor, I want probably a more stabilised system. Top Owl is uh, absolutely outstanding, but it's very embryonic in its development. In the Australian Army, I think, well, with the Taipan, is the only, the only user of, of, of pilotage floor anywhere in the world. Or we might save our, we might keep our powder dry on the on the top owl and, and the floor and catch up another time to, to go in depth on that. <laughs> Sorry to catch up. Oh, I just know it's it's a huge topic, so I think we'll uh, we'll give it some some due time when we, when we get a chance. Yeah, well, you know, it is. It's an interesting one because we're going to be fully reviewing in army now that we do have the floor in army and navy how we want to use that system and legislate for it, and we're going to do that this year. So it'll be quite an interesting one to catch up on. Okay. Number three, there was, yeah, I understand the limitation of your equipment and the conditions you operate in. Is that tied to that queuing environment or are you talking more about the, the aircraft there? It's tied to the queuing environment, yeah, the aircraft, the actual, um, and the systems. You know, the systems have, have limitations as well, what they can and can't do. Like auto hover systems are okay in some areas. Sometimes they just drift around all over the place and they can't catch up particularly if you are on maybe the edge of the cliff and there's a bit of turbulence. So you need you need to know your machine. But that's always been the case. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a fully automated you know, fly-by-wire four-axis NH90 or whether it's a Bell 47 hovering off that same cliff. I'd uh, extend that to, yeah. uh, to iPads and stuff like that that you bring in the, the cockpit with you in terms of, you know, if you're using a particular software package or something, that, you know, it now becomes part of your, 
aircraft equipment if uh, yeah. you're using it. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. Why, why would you not go now without, without without some sort of electronic flight bag or an iPad? You're just you're degrading yourself. You're in a degraded flight mode without that stuff. Yeah, so we're in the same boat, boat there, I guess, in the, in the civil industry. Is is all our flight tests at the moment? Uh, and again, when we're teaching our students, we're using paper map for everything because when they jump in with a flight examiner and go for their, their CPL test, that's what they're expected to use. We're love to yeah. get some flexibility there to start including iPad and have that included in, in the in the flight test. But yeah, and you know what, army army's in the same uh, and navy and air force as well. I was just talking to CACFS last year about this exact same thing. We're starting to think that uh, maybe, you know, for an instrument rating, you should be turning up with a full mission-planned data device from the mission planning software, uh, and your URSA either sits, or not your URSA, but your on-route charts and every other chart sits in the bag at the back of the flight deck or on your EFB. Yep. Everything else yep. is it's a digital glass copy. It's all about setting these aircraft up for taskworthiness as opposed to, oh, here I marked my map. Did I mark it in the right colour? And did I, uh, have I done it all right on the map? But unfortunately, um, the, uh, the, the, we're still probably thinking the old ways of assessment. Are, we need, I think we need a full needs analysis. You know, go back and have a look at, well, here are these new jets. But CAS is a bit different to military because they've got a massive range. You know, it could be anything from maybe a 206 uh, Long Ranger through to uh, someone flying an, an AW139. You've got to have the same generic assessment for them. Yeah. I don't know how classes can handle that, but for Army and Navy, we're flying NH-90s, Tigers, and F-model Chinooks. We don't have a, a basic platform anymore. No, yeah, it's different number of things. And But, uh, you know, as soon as that CPL graduate goes out and uh, and works anywhere, they're going to be using an iPad with Oz Runways or some other software package straight away. And I, I kind of mm. feel a bit bad that that's the first time they touch it, so they're learning it <laughs> on the job as opposed to, right. to learning on their commercial course. But I just can't spare the time in, the, in a commercial course to to fly with it when they need to be able to, the, the examiner standard is to be able to do it with a, a map. So, yeah, yeah. that's where we're at. And the last one we might wind it up then after this one is, uh, yeah, the, the, the cyclic back, uh, I guess, um, is a... The, I think it's in the new FAA uh, helicopter handbook. Yeah, auto entry, initiating with flare. Uh, sorry, the flare with cyclic first. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, I'm also, I used to, uh, when I had heaps of time before I was SO1 standard, used to listen to your podcast. I'm pretty sure one of your interviewees uh, a year or two ago maybe talked about this flare first. Um, definitely. Uh, the Empire Test Pilot School does this crazy manoeuvre called hesitations, whereby what you do is you fly along and you roll the throttle off on a kylie, you set it up at, um, or, or, or a gazelle they use, 80 knots, straight and level, three, two, one, bang, throttles off, 1,001 lower. And because the certification is that um, the, the collective has to be able to, like if the helicopter engine fails, you've got one second delay before you can lower the aircraft, uh, lower the collective and have the aircraft you know, enter auto and be safe. That's not mil-spec. Mil-spec doesn't have that, but um, but civil-spec does. And so what you do is you just do it in increments. You go a quarter of a second, half a second, three-quarter of a second, one second, and take it out a bit further. And they've now got to the point where they said, well, actually, that's the actual flat. But what you need to do to conserve NR, now this all depends, of course, where, where you're flying, but you need to... Uh, it's better if you actually flare the aircraft first. So in part of your flare, the flare is cyclic back, collective lower, 
as opposed to what probably you even got taught too, which is lower the collective flare of the aircraft. It's actually aerodynamically better the other way around. It gets the airflows through the disc and stops the NR decay uh, a lot more efficient if you actually flare the aircraft. So I think we've been doing things wrong for quite a while now. And certainly the mathematics behind it is there, the flight test data is there. But you'll see in a lot of flight manuals, you know, single engine failure and a single engine aircraft simultaneously clear the aircraft lower the collective. Yeah, so no, that was Pete Gillies. And uh, yeah, I think he's been pushing it in the US for quite a long time. And Yeah, well, uh, he's 100% right. 100% correct. Perfect. There you go. Yeah. Okay, well, look, it's amazing. I, you know, we had heaps more notes there to cover too, but I think just purely for time, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, uh, you know, I guess we're getting that sort of level off you very, very quickly in a short period of time. I can't imagine again what it's like for, for yourself seeing the bar with these these other guys over there on, on course. <laughs> there's just so much to learn. It's amazing. It is. There, there, there's, yeah, you, you can never, if you think you're good, you're not. You need to go over and have a chat to, to uh, you know, an astronaut or a uh, well, one of these developmental uh, people overseas, and you go, well, I haven't actually done that much at all. I probably don't know. You should never stop learning is the key. Never stop. No, that's brilliant. Look, yeah, thank you. That's, uh, yeah, great uh, for your time there. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I think we've got a whole there. We can probably talk about Fleur too and catch up again. Uh, but for now, we might, uh, might wrap that up there. So, Squid, thank you very, very much. That's been a pleasure. It's been good to see you and talk to you again. If you enjoyed that, then keep an eye out for more with, with Squid in the future. I think there is definitely another chat there that we can have to uh, cover and go into about the Top Owl helmet system and also about how forward-looking infrared, or as it's abbreviated to, to FLIR, systems bring out a new range of capabilities to helicopters. Squid was telling me about how in the latest Australian fires that the aircrew is able to see through the smoke quite well on the, on the FLIR, giving them a, a huge advantage in low visibility to get around on the fire grounds. On the blog post that goes along with this, this episode, there is a video that gives you an idea of just how well that capability works. You can find that and all the other past episodes at rotarywingshow.com. Talking about the website, Finn, who is the admin at helijobs.net, kindly reached out to me and let me know that the site is having a security warning depending on which browser you're using. Finn's on his way currently to Heli Expo. But Finn, if you're listening, thank you. I did get a SSL certificate working, but then it promptly locked me out of the uh, website admin um, back end. So I've had to reverse that and I'll have another crack at that again later on. It probably goes without saying at this point, but if you haven't subscribed through iTunes, Stitcher, or on your podcast app, that's always going to be the easiest way to get each episode. If you've ever got anything to add to the content of any of the episodes, it might be a link to a related video or a short story of your own, then the best place to do that and to, to put that is in the comments under each episode on the website. Even just a short thank you to the guest along with something you picked up from what they were talking about, I can always pass that on. Next out of the gate is an interview with a chap that flew H2 sea sprites off US Navy carriers. And Jim also covers off some of the history of the, the Cobra gunship design. So keep an eye out for that one. As we head out, again, I just want to acknowledge those people that are a real help to, to get these stories out and that cover some of the download bandwidth costs. If you felt like it and wanted to, then you can help out also at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Thank you to AJ, Brent, Chris, Eric, Gareth, Hal, Heath, Jack, 
Jake, Jason, John, Kevin, Mark, Michael, Peter, Rendell, Shannon, and Tony.